Yeah, um, but something I did actually want to talk about uh, that directly involves you. Um, it was something that was A, a disaster, B, a success at the same time, C, the first time we ever met. And that was probably my only actual experience in being a film director directing a crew with extras on location. It's the one and only time I've ever done that. And this would have been back in 2015 when I was trying to make Stray Dog. The very first the, the very first feature film I was ever trying to make never got made. But we decided, or I decided, and enlisted you to come on board, knowing that you were a cinematographer, that I wanted to film a test scene to get an example of how the film was going to look. I wanted to get an example of... Um, how the actors were going to be and basically I just wanted to see if I was going to be able to do it. So I booked a venue in the city centre of Edinburgh, got all the extras together out of people that were willing to help. Uh, at this stage, more likely than not, you're not going to be able to pay extras. You will get friends and family or anyone that's going to be willing to sit in that room. Um, you were on board, the actors were on board. Now, uh, as we all know, Things will go wrong on a film set. They will always go wrong at some point on a film set. It's it's not a big deal. You have to work around them. Day one. Filming at the Gilly Do in Edinburgh. The very first thing that happened was it went wrong. I turned up at the venue and they said that they had double booked. So I forgot immediately, about that. <laughs> immediately, I had... I don't know, 15, 16 extras planning to come to a venue that they weren't going to get into. I had no way of contacting them, so I was going to have to quickly rush around and get another venue. Thankfully, next door at the Rat Pack, they were more than happy to let us use it, provided we were in there for a couple of hours. That's not always guaranteed either. Uh, it always runs over time. Um... It, it, it wasn't a great first time directing and I, th I think that's uh, one of the reasons that I've always been a little bit hesitant to go back to doing productions that were bigger than just a small crew of maybe two or three people. Um, I can remember planning nothing. We went there, I had 16 extras with cast and crew all turning up at the same time because I thought if we're shooting it two I'm going to be there for 12 to set up. So I asked all the extras to come for the time that I was expecting to go there. 12. All the extras were sitting around for hours with nothing to do. In the end, I think half of them left. I had Ross, a friend who's regular on this channel, drops in when he's got nothing else to do in life, which is pretty regular. And he was following people around with a GoPro, disrupting the production process that I had ordered him to do because I wanted to get behind-the-scenes interviews and in the end, he was just, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh, uh, in the background of the camera, thus making every interview that he held unusable. Next thing that was wrong, I didn't know how to direct. I, I knew how to kind of tell people what to do, but when you were dealing with multiple people, it was starting to become a fan call. I can specifically remember a time where I called Cut, told everyone to take a break. Then th This is when I went out onto the bar floor. You might remember this. I went out onto the bar floor and a sugar glass that you'd made the night before of a bottle that was going to be broken. I started sweeping it up. 
And I, I think it was the first time I realized, oh, God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Because you shouted over the bar, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, get somebody else to sweep that up, come over here and direct the actors. And then from that moment on, my head just burst. And I thought, oh, no, I, I was just trying to be the nice guy that was letting everybody do, do, do their own thing. And I just wanted to do everything so that nobody had to do it because that's how I was used to working. Um, all that said... It was a very negative experience. I think I, I think I stood on someone's drone that had been brought in to get a drone shot. Um, I'd stepped back while talking to one of the actors and kicked his drone, and he was in a bad mood from uh, there on out. He turned up on time, and it went on an hour and a half beyond that. And overall negative. Having said that, the end product actually turned out pretty good. So you must have countless experiences where the production has actually been a massive hassle but in the end it almost felt worth it i think um almost every production's difficult at times and sometimes you wonder do i want to keep doing this um i don't remember it being as, as bad as you you remember it being um i was quite enjoying it for the most part i don't remember any bad or negative specific parts about it um I don't even really remember shouting at you to stop sweeping up the floor either, to be honest with you. I mean, it's quite a while ago and I've done a fair few projects since then, so they all kind of blend together eventually. But certainly I don't think it was a a bad experience. When I was looking across to see what you were doing at times, you were talking to actors, you seemed to be doing what you know was expected of a director. Um, I think the problem going into it was it was a last-minute change, as you said, to the venue. Times were all a bit over the all over the place you didn't have anyone trying to deal with them while you were trying to deal with everything else and you were doing too much and you're probably just feeling completely overwhelmed by it all um i thought the actual new venue was better than the gilly do if i'm all honest for the yeah. visual side of things and um you know we went in we kind of just fired some lights up had a wee plan and kind of just ran with it and you know as you said as you said the end product was pretty good it came out not bad i mean i would look back on it now and there's a lot of things i would probably do slightly differently or change but hindsight's always you know gives you the benefit of being able to do that whereas at the time it was very much a case of what do we have we need to get moving let's figure something out and you know whether it was luck or an element of you know knowing what we're doing and actually being a quite good team um it came together quite well and I was just talking to someone recently about all the projects that you and I have worked on together, and there's not that many of them, but they have all been recognised, they've all been quite well received, and they've, or they've gone on to win awards or be award nominated. So I think there's something um, there that we haven't really ever tapped into that's a shame because I think probably going forward, as we both got more comfortable and better in our roles, we probably would have made quite a good team um, progressing forward. I mean, actually, to go back to your, your point about uh, shoots that don't go well. You remember when we did Smile? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was only in that production as uh, uh, lack of a better term. I, I was just one of your little lackeys <laughs> that was uh, running around buying plastic shelving from Tesco. Oh, you did the sound. You needed something to stick a lamp on. Well, yeah, yeah I, I, I did some post-production work. Well, you were, but, you were um, the room operator and the sound recorders. But basically, anyway, the, the point is, that was all put together really quickly. It was like a 48-hour film challenge. We kind of set ourselves at work one day, you know, back when you and I worked in a call centre. And um, 
we thought let's just do something really quickly and we wrote a quick story we, we planned to shoot luckily we got you know a few good good friends came through and gave us a venue to play we got, got a couple of actors in to um, be in the project obviously um and then but we had a, a scene in, in a hotel room which was quite simple enough looked good enough i believe um but the next day was shooting in the in the pub. It was supposed to be a nightclub pub scene, and not a single extra showed up. And no. if you remember, but we had production to use crew the were having sitting tables, and the crew to try and like bunch them all together and try and make it look like there was more going on in this abandoned massive <laughs> club than there was actually going on. And um, some things just weren't weren't working properly. And uh, you know, at the time, I was trying to direct it and shoot it, and you know. Although, again, same boat you were in with Stray Dog, too many hats. And uh, I was downstairs, if you remember, at the bar, and I was just thinking to myself, ah, I'm done. I can't be bothered with this low budget indie stuff anymore. It just doesn't. Like, when, you, when you're when you aiming really high and you want to do stuff to a certain level and you just don't have the support or the income or the money or the things to make these things happen, you have to cut a lot of corners. And sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's worth it. But long story short, when we got to the end product, Smile went on to win a few awards. Nicolette got nominated for Best Actress. Um, it was pretty well received, generally, and had, you know, the end product felt like the whole uh, trial and tribulation was worth it in the end. Um, so, I think the um, pleasure, though, from the filmmaking process, for me, tends to come from seeing other people actually like your product. Because I could shoot a million films and they could all be absolute garbage. I don't see the point in, you know, doing that if the audience doesn't enjoy them. Because there's no point in you making a film just for yourself, right? You're doing it to entertain. You're trying to tell a story. You want people to tune in, watch your film, enjoy it, laugh when they're supposed to laugh, get a fright when they're supposed to get a fright, maybe even walk out the cinema and talk about it a little bit. Um, if there's nothing, no reaction whatsoever, you failed as a storyteller. And I think, again, like I said, when you get to the end product and people seem to enjoy it, that makes it all feel worth it. Yeah, well, you talk about the audience enjoying it and how sometimes you're just met with silence. Um, that that was something I also noticed when we went to the Raptor Film Festival, which uh, I think the guy that ran it did a really good job. He, he got a really nice venue, he rolled out a little red carpet, had a full cinema, he interviewed the filmmakers, he got the audience to ask questions. But at film festivals, especially on a smaller scale, do you, do you ever feel like the audience is just made up of people that are waiting to showcase their own film and they're not actually there to watch other people's films? Because I found a lot of the time people sort of were just kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs and not really willing to engage and ask people questions. And when, when the film was over, you, you got a, a, a kind of mild round of applause and in a way that that felt quite unsatisfying despite the fact that the films that we'd been submitting that year were nominated for awards and uh, uh even, even uh won one or two it just felt like the audience wasn't really into it so um it's okay people coming up to you afterwards and saying hey i thought that that film was good or hey we'll have to work together sometime but i, I think that initial rush of maybe hearing reactions while the film's going on, hearing the round of applause when the film's finished, or maybe even just seeing in the audience's eyes that they enjoyed it. But I didn't see that, and I'm not just talking about for our films, I'm saying for everybody's film, it didn't look like anyone was really 
that interested in watching them. They just wanted to showcase their own movie. Um, I would probably agree to that to some extent, especially at the, the smaller type of festivals, because some people have never had a film made before and they, they finally go ahead and do it. And then they submit it to various festivals and you know maybe they get into a few smaller ones and then they, they bring all their friends and family along. It's, it's exciting. Their film's been nominated. So they all come along and they just want to see their film on the big screen. Um, and then it's done. And then they've got to wait to get through everybody else's films or they want to, or they have to get to see whose film came at the end. And let's be honest, sometimes you're watching these films and you want to see the top three films and then compare them to your film to see what, why was it better? What did they do better? And so in some ways it's almost you know, a little bit healthy, healthy competition where you try to see the other filmmakers and what kind of things they're doing and potentially is there something that you like that you might want to work with them. And I think, as you said, you, you catch up with them at the end of the, the thing and you talk to them about, about what they're doing, what they've got coming up and maybe try and collaborate on something. Um, you also get unhealthy competition as well, though. Well, yeah, um, you do. But you, you, do, you do take the top three and think, uh, what, what did they do that I could have done um, or what did I not do that I could have done to make it as good as that? But you also watched some stuff that you were thinking, boy, am I glad that my film's following that. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been I've been in a situation where, again, Raptor Film Festival, um, Safe Haven got nominated and was doing quite well. And then uh, it played second last. And then the film that came on last was a really well shot film, a really well directed film. It had James Cosmo in it. And I looked at it, and as soon as I saw it, I just thought, like, fair enough. It deserves to be there, because it is probably the best film here, you know, looking-wise and all the rest. And um, there's no way you, you can compete with that. So there's also the element sometimes where some of these smaller festivals uh, are almost unfair, <laughs> because you've got guys who are maybe making a film for the first time, and they've got a really rough product, a really rough film, and it's you try to look at the good things that they've done so you can see how they can improve and grow and be develop as a filmmaker. And sometimes it's hard when you've been there so long ago to look at something that's not really that well done, but look for positives in it. And um, I don't mean that to sound horrible, but it, you guess, you know, you... It feels unfair. Yeah, because I mean, these guys but are in Sometimes there it feels unfair. For the sake of you know to film maybe the the slots that needed to be done, but really there's only maybe two mm -hmm. or three films or four films maximum in that entire uh, catalogue of films for that festival that really are competing for the awards, and sometimes you feel like you have no chance when you see some of the stuff that's in there. Um, that being said, Safe Haven did much better than I thought it was going to do, um, and actually. Uh, won you know we won some good awards that that year and i was surprised and i remember talking to guys at the end and they said that they felt the film showed a lot of ambition and considering the scale of the project and the budget we had and everything you know it got quite a lot of good reviews from people there and then so many people came up and spoke to me at the end and during the q a which i was dreading because i didn't really want to get up on stage and talk to people i had question after question after question so that felt good because, I mean, I felt like the audience had seen the film and they had questions about how he'd done it as a filmmaker. And a few of them had questions about the story and where it was going. So, again, that's where I was going back to seeing the audience seeming to appreciate the the effort you've put in. And um, 
that felt good despite the fact I was absolutely nervous and didn't want to go on stage. And I'd even said beforehand that I don't want to come up and do a Q&A. And then at the event, they called my name out and I thought, oh, crap, I need to go up on stage. So there I was standing there, light in my eye, thinking there's no chance anyone's really going to ask me any questions. And boom, question after question after question. So um, I guess my experience uh, of festivals differs from yours. I remember being by your side when we were talking about Dying to Forgive, I believe it was. And uh, yeah. yeah, you maybe only fielded three or four questions and there's awkward silences there. And that was completely different to when I was up there the year before for Safe Haven. So um, I, I think you might have a three to four question error margin there. I don't think anyone asked any questions. Uh, I think, uh, you, you, you know, you could you could see the tumbleweed rolling across the stage. You, you could hear the crickets in, in the back of the auditorium, so, so much so that Chris Young, the, the event organiser, he turned and started asking questions because he must have been thinking, oh, poor guy, nobody's asking this guy any questions. So when it won the Audience Award, I hadn't planned anything to say. I didn't think for a second that that was going to win. So you just kind of had to flag it. Yeah, so I've got a question for you then. So obviously after we did Dying to Forgive, we did that in what, two days? I remember it was one day, I forget. Anyway, it was a quick turnaround project. We put it, you put it together, you came up with the script. Uh, you, you know, at the time there was uh, personal situations that were going on that made it difficult for you to commit to film work the way you wanted to and used to. Um, we did that project and then eventually you moved on and actually got a new job that took you away from the film industry entirely. Uh, and then during COVID, you started doing the stop motion. So what got you into doing that? I mean... Was it just purely to do something film-related whilst being you know, at home on your own and having to only deal with it yourself? Well, there's there's an element of that. When it first started, the first thing I ever made was during the COVID lockdown that affected the whole world. You might have heard of it. There was no possibility to properly film, at least not with a cast or crew properly. Um and there'd been a time, I think, when I was staying in Bulgaria, uh, I'd, I'd seen a film called Mary and Max from um, Adam Elliott. Have you ever seen Mary and Max? No. It's it's a, it's a stop motion. Uh, it's a, a stop motion feature film about a fat guy from New York that has Asperger's that becomes pen pals with a young girl in Australia. And it chronicles their life. And it's quite a dark film. It's, it's it's very, very funny. If you haven't seen it, I would actually really recommend you watch it. But elements of it were very dark. And seeing it filmed at the time, we're talking this was 2010 I was watching this, maybe even 2009, uh, I thought even back then, it'd be quite interesting to see if a stop-motion film could be made that was creepy like this. It, it wasn't like... It didn't have creepy moments. It was intended to be made as a horror or thriller. And it wasn't until we were in COVID lockdown that I found Lee Hardcastle, who uh, you know, he has like over 1 million sub subscribers. He makes phenomenal horror stop motion stuff on YouTube. It's also rather funny. And I just thought, well, if I can't film anything, I might try and go down that route. And I, I just, using any old YouTube tutorial that I could find that would help me do what I was trying to do. Um, I, I watched it completely self-taught, and you can tell many times that it's a self-taught effort. thought, yeah, th th this is what I'm going to do. But it, it was intended on being a one-off thing. It wasn't until I finished making that I actually really enjoyed the process that I thought, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to keep up doing this. And 
especially with work, family, uh, you know, th- there's a kid now, a six-year-old kid that can be quite demanding. It, it seemed like an easier medium. You could just return to the attic in that spare half hour or spare hour and just get a little bit of work done. It, it was so much easier than gathering a full cast and crew together. What I didn't expect was how expensive it would be. And it is really expensive to buy the material to make some of these stop motion things. Um, just building a character, all the replaceable mouths, the skeleton underneath, the clay, the hardened clay, the trial and error, and also the talent to when you break it, if you were to break the face, you've got to replicate that. And I'm nowhere near skilled enough as an animator to do that without it being obvious on screen yet. So it's a lengthy, expensive process, but I, I love it. I really do love it. I just wish it didn't take so long, but um, it teaches you patience, if nothing else. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it? That you want to do creepy horror stop motion, and there you are, a grown man, hiding away in a room, playing with little plasticine men and women, and doing things to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at that. I mean, they're, they're staring at me right now. I mean, we're talking it could be over 200 just for a single character. Over two hundred pounds just for the skeleton of just for the skeleton of a single character could cost nearly two hundred pounds. You'd be as well paying for an actor at that price, eh? Well, I, I wouldn't even pay two hundred pounds for an actor at that price. They'd be working <laughs> for one fifty less or nothing. But um, when when the finances are in order, you know, more of them will come. There'll there'll be more to the little company of Terra's family, and hopefully, I'll be able to build something that looks like it's on a much higher scale. So, from that. We got chatting again, you know, being a, you know, we'd be kept in contact, but we hadn't had, you know, as many sort of full on conversations as we've been having recently. And we got back to writing and try to come up with some ideas for some other projects and things. And um, I don't know, it felt to me like there's a little fire that kind of maybe been simmering away, kind of reignited a little bit there. And, you know, we started writing our own scripts. Um, how's that coming along for you? Uh, there's not been any work done on it. And where do you want to go with that, actually, when it's done? Because like you said time and everything's really difficult you don't necessarily have the resource to pull away and shoot a film or a feature film so once you've got a script what's next where do you want to go do you want to go back to making films at some point well definitely not in the uh, i definitely would but not in the immediate future uh, i i would like to return to it and yeah you have this little knack Stuart, when you're talking to me of pulling me in with with these pro- you you, you get, you get these thoughts in your head as if, oh, oh my God, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get Stephen Graham. St- Stephen Graham's going to be in my film. Like, uh, Eddie Marsden's maybe going to be in my film. We, we might have a, a budget of, you know, a, a six-figure budget. We're, we're going to be out with the Cairn Gorms making a film. And it's not until you step back from it and think, you, you know, that was probably actually a, a rather unlikely end to that, at, le- at least at this stage. So I, I just wanted to write it. I, I like to try and finish the things that I've started. Um, so by starting a script I just wanted to finish it what happens after that god at this stage I wouldn't even be upset with uh, giving the script to someone who did have the capacity to make it uh, with the quality that it would deserve um, or selling the script to somebody um, who knows maybe maybe these things could even be made into some of the stop motions one day or novelize uh, it's something I started doing recently taking some of the short films that I've thought of over the years that I've never made and started novelizing them so that they can be read as literature as opposed to uh, watched as a film. Have you ever done anything like that? 
Not really. I've tend of I've I've kind of pulled away from writing things when I'm at my, my pal Craig because he's a writer. So I mean, whenever we need the stuff written, he wrote it and we either made it or we he got stuck in his you know portfolio of stuff to come back to one day where maybe we can do it. Um, what I'm finding interesting now though, um, with technology coming on the way is is a uh, stuff being made in Unreal Engine, which it's a free bit of software you can download and. You should have a look if you haven't looked at anything yet. Go on YouTube and look up for look up Unreal Engine short films. Some of them are amazing; they're they're stunning visually. And um, I was thinking it'd be something that'd be worth you looking at if you're if you're stressed for time. Unreal Engine you can do at home on your own. Granted, it's a whole new piece of software you'd have to learn, and you need a pretty powerful machine to run it. Um, but you can make films that are really good looking films. Um, you know, with this bit of software just from your, again, your basement or your attic or wherever you want to set a computer and do these kind of things. Is um, this kind of you, similar to, well, what, what's what's that what's that anthology series that you find on Netflix? Uh, uh, Love, Death I, and Robots? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, some of that's animation and done with various things and maybe some of it's done in Unreal Engine and I don't really know for sure, but... Um, what I can tell you, tell you is that Unreal Engine is used in quite a lot of virtual productions. So when you're looking at things like The Mandalorian, for example, um, what's the west? What's the western one? The western one. Yeah, Westworld. <laughs> um, of course. Yeah. What? Yeah, of course. The name just kind of gives it away. Uh, Westworld. They use Unreal Engine and virtual production to create a lot of the backdrops and set extensions and all that kind of stuff and. It's amazing because actors can then interact with the scenery in a way they can't do that with green screens. And you have real lighting things going on because you've got screens up above you and to the left of you and all the rest of it. So when you've got light and reflections and it's hitting off things correctly there and then as you're filming. Um, I would love to do something with virtual production, but I just it's a very steep learning curve, I think. And I don't have a computer powerful. I, I had to play with it. But my computer just couldn't run it properly. But I think it would be something that you should probably look at because it's a free bit of software. There's loads of free elements inside of it that you can get for you know and build massive worlds. And you could shoot some of these really mental, scary, in-depth horror films, be shorts or features inside of Unreal Engine. Like I say, check it out. There's some really, really good stuff that's been done inside this bit of software. Um, yeah, I guess I should I, check it I, out. I think it's, in a lot of ways it's probably going to be the future of the film industry. The way green screen took over so many things, this is going to take over that, but it's going to allow you to shoot a vast scape inside of a, a relatively small studio, you know, and still look good. Well, yeah, it, it seems like something I should check out. Maybe I'll watch one or two and then check in with you on the next podcast and let you know what I've watched and what I thought of it. Yeah. Um, but by all means, if you're saying that your computer wasn't able to handle it, there's not a chance in hell that mine will be able to handle it. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, I, I mean, you say that green screen is something that for the animation I also use. Even if it was an alternative to um, green screening the characters, um, so far I'm just taking images that I'm finding on Google image search and framing them a certain way and blurring them so that they'll look good as a backdrop but you could you're saying that you could create the world that these characters could be green screened into from scratch yeah well I mean to your point there for example I mean you use an LED wall 
right, to, you know, do your backdrop and stuff. And then that you've got your world and your set extension. So in theory, I guess, and this is probably going to sound really stupid coming from somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about, but if you had a, a decent LED TV, I guess, um, and for what you're doing, it's probably enough. You could have your image on the screen in your background, have your character in the foreground, and then, you know, you could have things going on and around that. And rather than having a green screen it, you've already got your, your backdrop essentially in place. So any thing that's going on there, for example, if you've got fire going on, it reflects. It should, in theory, reflect off your subject. So oh, yeah. you're worth having to be play with, man. I mean, I, I would have a look at it. Because certainly I think it could be useful even just to create the set extensions and, and the world that your little characters are living in. Because you've got your physical set and then you've got your backdrop. So uh, I guess the di the difference there would be that um, the LED would also have to move frame at a time. It, c it couldn't be animated. It would have to be manually moved frame by frame by frame as sure. you were animating If you take characters. it into a software that allows you that control, you can just do frame, move forward a frame, adjust your model, move forward a frame, and you you know it's and then by the end of it, maybe it feels like it would take longer as you're doing it at the time. But then you eliminate the post-production process almost immediately because you're done. When you finish that little section, you have your background animated along with your foreground and your character. You don't have to I, then go in and green screen it and add it in and all the rest. So I guess a, a test of that technique could be used as one of the YouTube shorts here. Yeah, well, why don't we do that? I mean, that'd be great. I don't. You could do the animation thing and I'll try and come up with some kind of uh, way of making testing an LED wall and we could try something out. I mean, an, an LED wall in a studio is going to be a wall bigger than a person. For me, I could easily use a spare monitor. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. So it'll probably just be a, an LED monitor with the brightness up full or something. I don't know. We'll figure that one out. Again, we're doing something on a low-end scale. It's a test. It doesn't have to be um, a real-world scenario. All we're doing, essentially, is testing out the theory that something could work. And then if it does, you'd extrapolate that into a larger scale you know, if that were ever possible. But you can do, you can Google it, Unreal Engine behind the scenes, Mandalorian and um, Westworld, and they show you some really cool featurettes about how they've been used and how all the lighting works within that world that's created and um, how they can change things and move things around. Um, it's really cool. I just wish I had the, the time to learn it all and figure it out. Uh, I think it could, it'd be a great way to help a lot of lower budget or indie filmmakers have a... a, a a means to create larger scale, yeah. Yeah, without having to really leave their bedroom if they didn't want to, you know. Or, or the attic. Or the attic or the basement, you know. <laughs> there's no basement. There's no basement. There, there's no production. You say that, Douglas, anyway. but, you know. Speaking of um, shit, did you watch Harry and Meghan? No. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was forced to. My, my partner was intent on watching harry and of course Meghan. you were forced to yeah uh -huh. yeah um, no, i don't know man I, I don't really have any interest in it i don't i'm not somebody who gets excited about the royal family i don't really care either way about them um when the queen died it was historic and i guess because she'd been there for my entire life it was something that maybe i looked at the, i watched some of the stuff about it but you know i didn't know the person it wasn't like it was something that hit me hard um, and I really don't care about Harry or Meghan or any of the crap that goes on with that. It's, it just doesn't interest me. I've got enough going on in my own actual life that actually needs to be dealt with and managed to really care about somebody else. Uh, 
well well when when the queen died when the queen died that felt to me like the finale of a season or or something yeah the crown it's on uh, netflix no, no, no. I'm meaning in real life, this is the finale. Ah, yeah, but it'll be and on Netflix eventually. When the, when King Charles came in, it was like starting a new show from scratch, and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not really that interested in following something from the the beginning anymore. I've, I've, I've stuck with that for so long, and now it feels like everything reset. And Well, to your point, it's like Vikings. After, they kill, after spoiler alert, but it's been long enough now that, too bad. And then, you know, they killed off Ragnar. And then it was following his sons. And there was a moment there where I almost kind of didn't really want to keep watching it, but I did. And, you know, it was it was fun. But the, the earlier seasons for me were the better ones. And then there's a spin-off. You know, you've got Valhalla, which I've watched and I enjoyed it. But again, it took me a little while to get into because you're watching new characters in the same world talking about the people you've just been watching in the season prior. Doesn't always uh, resonate. You'd rather be watching them again. You don't want to be watching the, this new spin-off. You you want to go back to what you fell in love with in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Um, so why why's everything got to be a universe now? Everything's got to be a universe. Once the Avengers opened up that uh, Pandora's box, everything's a universe. Eleven seasons, eleven seasons. I stuck with The Walking Dead, and it ended on essentially a trailer for the spin-off shows. So The Walking Dead. The series ended, but the universe opened up. And that's not the closure that I was looking for. Is, but they'd already done almost... the spin-offs, though, because you've got Fear of the Walking Dead and all the rest of it, and that's all going around you know, in conjunction with that. Admittedly, I actually stopped watching The Walking Dead, um, partly because, if I remember correctly, it was when all the writer strikes were going on and the, the, the seasons had huge gaps between them. Yeah. And uh, it was the comeback episodes where Negan kills... Glenn and all the rest and I watched I tried to I, I think it stuck with that season mostly to the end and then after that I just kind of fizzled out for me not but I don't know why I think it just felt every show every season was just the same rehash of the season prior just with a, a bigger bad guy and a few more losses but ultimately it was just the same story rehashed and rehashed and rehashed and um, I think for me I, I just lost a lot of interest in it no, um, it always ran back to that same theory. I was like, "Oh, the, the zombies aren't the problem. It's us humans. Humanity is the problem." Yeah, and um, yeah, you're right to an extent, but like the zombies too. That definitely exasperates the situation substantially. It just baffled me though that every time Rick and his gang would encounter other humans, all they wanted to do was fight each other. You would have thought they would want to try and rebuild society in some form or manner rather than always try to kill each other, especially when you're basically now an endangered species. Well, this happened late, later on in the show. They did this. They, they, they started collaborating with um, with other communities, but th- there was always that one bad community that had to creep in and invade. But it, it always fell back to humans are the problem, not the undead that is killing the living. I think the undead killing the living is a pretty big problem. Sorry. I guess it's a, a problem in that they're, they're killing people, but they're not doing it out of any malicious intent, are they? They're just going about their day and trying to eat their lunch. No, you know, but the humans, on the other hand, they're going around killing each other. On, on, on the on the flip side of it, they wouldn't be killing each other had the zombies not been depleting humanity. Well, that, well, you say that, but then you know, there's lots of wars and stuff going. Every humans kill each other daily, and all the zombies were doing was just uh, eating each other because, or eating humans because they were hungry. And so they're just living on a base instinct. They're not. They're not um, 
Which I guess in some ways is trying to imply that humans' base instinct is just death and destruction. But, With a barbed wire baseball bat. Do you ever read Geek Soup? No. It's um, a website that has uh, like various media and blog type things. And they did an article, I think it was in June 2022. It was uh, called 40 Movies to See Before You Die. Now, uh, 40 movies to go through on the podcast would be ridiculous. Uh, 40 episodes, do one a show. <laughs> we could, or we could do the top 10 this show, which is what I was planning on doing. Uh, maybe not talking about them in depth, just sort of seeing how, how much you would agree or disagree. And maybe next time each of us could add five movies each to make a strange top 10 of um, films that we think you should see before you die. Uh doesn't doesn't have to be anything too complex. We don't have to talk about the films in depth, but I, I just thought I'd quickly go through the list um, to let you know what Geek Soup was saying in regards to films to see before you die. See if you agree or disagree. Number ten, they put Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I don't think anyone would disagree that Raiders of the Lost Ark shouldn't be on some sort of top film list of of any category. It, it, it is a great film. I was never a massive fan of Indiana Jones, but watching them again as an adult, I can see kind of at least what the appeal was at the time. I, I loved Indiana Jones. The adventure movie craze. And you were shaking your head. Are, are you not as big a fan as it these days? No, I, no, I still love it. Um, I was watching it really just at Christmas time there, actually. The, the uh, you know, they've got the box offices on the, on the, the streaming services. So I was sitting there watching yeah. I always remember Temple of Doom, though. Um, with the monkey head and the brains. Oh, it's the, the, the darkest one. Definitely the darkest one. Yeah, I, I, I think... I don't remember if it was the first one I saw or not, but it was certainly the one that I remember the most. And, of course, there's key points for other, uh, you know, films from the Indiana, Indiana Jones series that I um, can remember specifically. But in, the Temple of Doom was the one that always just... It's there in my head. Even now, I can remember parts of it. It's clear as I watched it yesterday, you know? Yeah, loved it. I, I do think it's a product of the 80s and uh, to some extent the 90s. When the fourth one came out and seen the trailer for the fifth one, I thought, uh, I, I don't think it works anymore. But I think there's a nostalgia, though. There's a nostalgia, though, isn't there? Because Stranger Things came out and it was such a throwback to the sort of things. I mean, I'm older than you, right? So there was very much of the things I grew up watching. Stranger Things was a throwback to that kind of stuff. And so there's been a re-resurgence and stuff from the 80s and the 90s and we're kind of coming back round to that kind of content. And where Indiana Jones fell flat the last time with the Crystal Skull, I think it could be more popular just now with the latest version because it's coming out when that kind of stuff's still hot. Granted, it's probably starting to fizzle out a bit just now. Um, but the little the nostalgia in me when I saw the trailer for the newest one I'm probably going to watch it. I'm probably not going to enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the original ones. I didn't really enjoy Crystal Skull. But I'm still probably going to watch it because it's Indiana Jones and it's part of my yeah. childhood. It's Indy. We're going to watch Indy. It's got Phoebe Waller-Bridge who, you know, I, I think she's pretty funny. I don't know if you ever saw Fleabag, but I, I quite like her style of comedy and I'm pretty sure she'll be able to inject a decent amount into that. And her kind of comedy always always really works in the the kind of sense of humor that indiana jones goes down um so who knows who knows it might be good um num number nine fargo the coen brothers roger deakins though with your I mean, man roger on. deakins yeah. 
Uh, again, don't think anyone that's seen it would disagree that it has to be on the list. If people haven't seen it, go out there and watch it, as well as the first three series uh, on the televised version. Number eight. Hmm. Doesn't really fit in with the other ones. Jojo Rabbit by Taika Waititi. To see before you die, really? It was interesting. I saw, I remember going to see it at the cinema and I enjoyed it, but I don't know if it's in a top 10 must-see-before-you-die uh, category. I would agree. Loved it in the cinema. The environment in the cinema with the taking the mech out of Hitler and the boy kicking Hitler in the balls. and The, the sense of humour works really well with Taika Waititi in a group. I think had I been watching that on my own in the bedroom... Uh, in the living room, on my phone, wherever. I don't think it would have had the same effect, and I don't think it would have stuck with me quite how it has, which isn't very much in the first place. You could probably argue that happens with a lot of comedy, though. When you're in a group of people and they all laugh at something or have a wee chortle, you can laugh together. When you're on your own, it's very hard to laugh out loud, and when you do, it's got to be something that's absolutely hilarious. And in most cases, for me, it's just something that's so stupid, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> in fact, I can remember... <laughs> Like I can remember, for some, me and some friends went to the cinema to see, I can't remember what it was, but whatever it was, it wasn't on, right? And we were at the cinema there and we thought, right, screw it, we'll just go watch something. And there's a film called The Hot Chick, I think, had Rob Schneider in it or something. I mean, it's like trading places where he ends up, end up in the body of a, of a girl. I mean, me and my friends were in, in the cinema watching this thinking, this is going to be garbage. But they have a pillow fight. And there's a point where he uppercuts one of the girls with a pillow and sends her flying across the room. I mean, me and my three, uh, three friends just burst out laughing. But because we were laughing together, we were laughing at each other laughing. And so it just got uncontrollable. And we were probably there for, I don't know, five, six minutes just laughing our heads off. The rest of the cinema were getting pretty pissed off because it probably wasn't that funny. And having seen it, having seen it since on my own or whatever, it's never been that funny again. I don't know why it was that funny at that moment in time. And I think partly it was because you're with a group of people and you're laughing together. Um, you got to wonder how many comedies um, hit test audiences that people are actually laughing at how not funny it is or people are laughing at how ridiculous or how crap it is. And they could be laughing at each other laughing. And the producers sitting in there with the test audiences must be thinking, oh, the audiences are loving this. Yeah. This, this, this is going to be a hit. When it turns out to actually be a load of rubbish like the hot chick was. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I... I I'm not going to lie. I, I, I've seen a few Rob Schneider films in cinema. You know what? You know I, what? I, I don't think I'll ever go back. No. But I, I, you know what you're going to get. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what you're going to get. It is the lowest common denominator, but, you know, hey, sometimes that's what you need. And number seven, The Godfather. I, I don't think we have to talk about The Godfather. Uh, I think if you haven't seen it, see it. It definitely deserves to be on a top 10 list, but I think anything that has to be said about it has been said already. I would also suggest, though, don't try and watch them all in a marathon, because that just... I, I did that once, and uh, you, you tune out by about halfway through the second one, if not earlier, because they're so long. They are. I, I mean, if I was going to marathon, it would be one and two. Yeah. It would be one and two. Forget three. Number six, another film that probably needs no introduction, is Terminator 2. Funnily enough, I, was, I watched that recently, actually. It still stands up, in my opinion. There's a few bits that are a bit obviously iffy now, like the, the stuck-on liquid metal when he's been shot in the corridor, but generally yeah, speaking... Like it's, little tinfoil yeah. covers. Um, 
But you got to nah, remember, I wouldn't just say it stands up. I think it's better. The, the older you get, it's better. You, you understand the sort of a disaster movie element to it, or the, like the risk of the end of the world. Whereas, you know, when you're a kid, you just want to see the robot fight the other robot, or you want to see them um, shoot the liquid robot, the T-1000. But uh, the older you get, I, I think the actual story, the acting, the, the character development is masterfully done. Masterfully. You know what I found funny, actually? I was watching something recently on YouTube and uh, it was talking about films that didn't stand the test of time for their graphics and effects. Terminator 1 was in there. It, right? I would agree. Well, I mean, you look at it now and, of course, it looks aged. It, you're you're talking about a film that was made in, what, 1983 or something? Um, on a shoestring budget yeah shoestring budget made way back in the early 80s and they're trying to say now in 2020 you know which is I think when the video came out that it didn't stand the test of time it's like well not much does that's you know 20 or 30 years old so it just seemed like the typical crappy list on YouTube where people are going in and attacking things that are you know old it's like going back now and saying that the effects in really old movies from the 50s don't stand the test of time of course they won't but you know, maybe something that their their dad suggested that they watch, and uh, you know, they go and watch it because uh, their dad liked it back in I don't know, like nineteen the nineteen eighties, and uh, yeah, uh, I guess we, we've grown up with it, so um, we've evolved as the film industry's evolved. So you can st- still kind of appreciate the stuff that I don't know, man. I I still think the scene when he's doing the um surgery on his arm and he's got the little piston thing moving oh up the man the vein. it looks terrible and the, no the, the vein on it when he's oh the, the arm looks yeah. great the mask looks terrible well that's well yeah the, the, when the, he's doing the, his well, eye it was a, it wasn't it was animatronic wasn't it they used for the the head like it was like a stan winston animatronic yeah. um i think james Cameron talks about that. i saw something recently he was talking, it was an animatronic and things and i think what they did was they had arnold's arm his hand sticking through the uh, a table, a hole in the table, then the fake prosthetic for the robotic arm. So that's how they're able to move it around and do stuff. Um, yeah, it was it was out of frame. It was out of frame. Yeah, but the but the um, but the vein that still to this day creeps me out a little bit when you see the vein over the bit of metal and he's pulling the piston thing back and forward. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, n- number four, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, that was number 10. Maybe my favourite of the Indiana Jones. Talked about Indy already, so we'll just Number skip one. to something else that... Whew, talk about a series that ran its course and put itself into the ground. Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? The first two will always be up there. You know, even Die Hard with a Vengeance, I quite enjoyed that. I'm not going to lie, I did. I think 1, 2 and 3 are great. I think 1 and 3 are brilliant. You know what, Four right? 4 was okay. You watched Die Hard 4... Point oh, whatever the fuck it's called, right? And you're watching it the whole time, waiting for yippee Kaye motherfucker, and they cut it. They ruined it. Like, the whole reason you're watching John McClane is for that, you know, catchphrase. And they cut it. Why? Why would you do that to something that's essentially his calling card? Well, it's a trademark. It's, like, it's, it's a key. It's yeah. a key to Die Hard. And, you know, the Die Hard was always kind of known for, you know, it's nitty-gritty violence it was quite explicit they were they were profane with their language they almost anti-heroic because he was supposed to be a cop but he i'm pretty sure his sergeant would have went through him he 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 shouldn't have been shooting this place up but he was doing what he had to do and when you reach die hard for it yeah it was all toned down it was like a return to the american action movie but it was all just kind of watered um 
I, I, I did like it though. Is it a Christmas five. movie though? I, I don't care what he says. It's a Christmas movie. He's getting dementia anyway. Isn't that why he ran out of acting ability? So, yeah. He sorry, Bruce Willis. He he quit acting because of his brain. Yeah, he's, he's not well. So you know, I'm not going to speak ill of somebody who's who's not well. So I'll I'll let you do the uh, the ripping there. They play "Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow" in the end credits. It's a Christmas movie, okay. <laughs> Number two. Number two. Michael Douglas falling down. Great movie. Falling down at number two. Yeah, it's a good film, man. I really enjoy it. I love the film. He is not the villain. He even points it out himself at the end. I'm the bad guy. How did that happen? Yeah. I was rooting for that guy the whole way. Yeah, you kind of hope it's going to figure something's going to help him out or something's going to happen, but it doesn't. And I think that's probably a good, especially now as I'm a bit older and I watch things now, and things just don't play out the way you think. And you do maybe everything right the way you're told you're supposed to do it. And things just don't work, and you find yourself in horrible situations, and then you and then you turn to drastic measures, and suddenly you're the bad guy in your story, and it's like, well, how did that happen? And I think it's probably reminiscent of a lot of people in this day and age. The, the conversation he has with the uh, what we I guess call the council of what's wrong with the street? What's wrong with the street? You you guys just need inflated budgets. Tell us that the street was working perfectly fine yesterday. You're going to see an entire street just broke down in one day. What's wrong with the street? Because of all the traffic that's been built up and the guys, nothing, nothing's wrong with the street. And of course he takes it out. But seeing the traffic here in Edinburgh, boy, I can relate to that scene. Number one, interesting choice. Planes, trains and automobiles. Geek Soups, number one film to see before you die. It should be on the list. It's a great film. I love it. Uh, again, one of those you, films... You were talking earlier about Rob Schneider. Yeah, but it's John Candy. Being able and... to laugh at a film. Being able to laugh at a film on your own. That film makes me laugh. Yeah. If I'm watching it on my own. That the, But then John Candy and Steve Martin, these guys were comedians in a different time and things were actually... You could make jokes about things that you can't talk about now. Like, even Uncle Buck... Hilarious. Uncle Buck should be on that list, I must say. It should be on that list. Uncle Buck is an amazing movie. Five movies. Pick five movies that you think should be on your... You have to see these five before you die. I will pick a separate five, and we'll see how we go. 